On Friday nights, <clears throat> carloads of people from Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon, show up and care for the homeless community in their city. They give them hot meals, they give them shaves and haircuts, they even some of them wash the feet of the homeless, immersing them in a tub of warm soapy water, scrubbing them, drying them, and then fitting them with two brand new socks. A reporter for USA Today was, was covering this story, and he was stunned by what he saw, calling it, quote, one of the most audacious acts of compassion and humility I have ever witnessed. I have been a part of foot washing services before. Most recently, I took part in a foot washing service at um, the Episcopal Church downtown, St. John's, a few years ago before COVID during a Monday Thursday service. And my guess is that many of you have had similar experiences or been a part of services where this took place. Some of you would say it was a powerful experience. Others of you would say, well, it was awkward. It can be both at the same time. It can be very meaningful, but also deeply uncomfortable at the same time. Well, our passage today is where we get the idea of foot washing, but if all we take away from John chapter 13 is that we should institute foot washing in our worship services, then we have missed something very important that I think Jesus is trying to teach us in this passage. <clears throat> As John 13 opens, uh, things in the Gospel of John begin to slow way, way down. Some of you, many of you perhaps, use the Lexio 365 app. Uh, for morning prayer and sometimes for evening prayer as well and on Sundays they do something a little different they don't do what they've normally done praying through a passage of scripture through the rest of the week they have a Sabbath prayer of rest instead and when they have that they have a blessing toward the end and in that closing prayer one of the blessings is this may the gravity of material things be lightened and the relativity of time slow down I love that image of being set free from the pressures of materialism and time to simply be with God, to rest in God, to rest in God's grace and God's presence. In John 13, the relativity of time does in fact slow way down. It begins to. So for instance, the first 12 chapters of the Gospel of John, the first 12 chapters take about three years, covers about three years. Chapters 13 through 17, five chapters happen all in one night. And if John is slowing things way down as he's telling us the story, it's important for us to ask, why is John slowing things down? John is slowing things down because he wants us, he wants to say to us, look closely at what is happening here. It's very important. John tells us in verse 1, it was just before the Passover. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So we now enter a new section in the Gospel of John. John tells us that the Passover festival had arrived. And in John, each new festival signals a new phase in Jesus' ministry and a new section in his Gospel. And then he tells us that the hour had come for Jesus. Whenever we see that language most often, I think, in the Gospel of John, it refers to the hour of Jesus' death, when he will be glorified, when he will glorify the Father. Now, in what sense does Jesus' death glorify God? Well, for one thing, Jesus' death 
glorifies God because he is being obedient. Jesus is being obedient to God the Father. He's being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, as the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2. But there's something else here, too. God is glorified, or God's glory is revealed in Jesus' death on the cross because God's sacrifice, God's self-giving, truly displays God's nature. God's self-sacrifice, God's self-giving, truly displays God's nature. Whatever other pictures of God we may have, stern judge, an aloof and distant God who is kind of indifferent to us, or a Santa Claus God that gives us everything we ask for, whatever images we may have, this is who God truly is. Jesus laying down his life for his sheep. In this way, Jesus loves his own to the end, to the utmost, to the fullest possible extent, to the finish. To say that Jesus loved his own to the end is to say that he loved them up to and into God's purposes for them. And the language used here is very similar to the language that he uses, that Jesus will use on the cross just before he dies, and there he will say, it is finished. And in doing so, he will use the Greek root word telos. Telos, for purpose, goal, or end. The goal God had given Jesus to accomplish had been completed, in other words. Here in chapter 13, the same root word is used. Jesus loves his disciples to the end of, to the completion of God's purposes for him and for them. What Jesus does here when he washes their feet foreshadows his death on the cross, foreshadows God's ultimate purposes. The servant nature of our God is displayed, revealed, when Jesus, the Son of God, washes the feet of his disciples, even the one who is going to betray him, even his enemy. This was God's goal, God's telos, telos. For while we were God's enemies, Romans 5.10 tells us, Christ reconciled us to God. John then goes on to tell us that they were, as they were eating together, that the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus, and we are told three times in 20 verses that Judas will betray Jesus. So this too links what's happening on this night when Jesus washes their feet with what will happen in the coming chapters when Jesus dies on the cross. John continues, verse 2. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Let's not miss that sentence. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Whatever Jesus is about to do, it is because of what he knows about himself. He knows where he comes from. He knows where he's going. This is an amazing sentence. It looks all the way back to John chapter 1, where we are told that this cosmic word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And it points forward to what will happen in the coming chapters. Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. It is Jesus' identity in the Father God's eyes that has enabled him to serve his disciples in this way, and to serve us all, 
by going to the cross, to the way of the cross. He knew who he was. He knew where he came from. He knew where he and all things were headed. God's telos in and through him. God's purposes. It is the same for you and me. We will be best empowered to serve God and others when we truly begin to grasp how deeply we are loved by God, for we too know where we've come from and we know where we're going. We have come from lives distant from God, but we have been brought near to God by the blood of Christ. We have come from lives lived in rebellion and sin against God to lives reconciled to God. This too enables us to serve one another and others. And then, and this is important, because, because Jesus knows where he has come from, God, and where he is returning to, God, back to God, we read this in verse 4. So, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. When John says that he took off his outer clothing, it more literally reads, he laid down. He laid down his outer clothing. The same verb Jesus used in John 10, 18, when he talked about himself as the good shepherd who would lay down his life for his sheep. The same verb. Servanthood, sacrifice, self-giving, and death are all wrapped up in this imagery of foot washing in the nature of who God is and in the nature of who God has created us to be. Verse 6. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize what I'm doing, now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, my hands, my head as well. You can hear it. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that is why he said not everyone was clean. As usual, Peter has no trouble putting his foot into his mouth. And for a guy who later became quite an important leader in the early church, he sure has his embarrassing moments. There is hope for us all. Peter is the patron saint of everyone who enters the room mouth first, your pastor included. After Peter's initial objection, Jesus tells him, you don't understand right now, but you will understand later, to which... Peter replies, more literally, Lord, you shall never wash my feet for all eternity, or perhaps I will not let you wash my feet to infinity and beyond. Last week we talked about the the last of the seven signs in John's gospel, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. The language of signs refers in the gospel of John to miraculous events, but this incident of foot washing bears some similarities to those signs. Like a sign in the Gospel of John, the telling of this event follows a certain pattern. The pattern is this. The sign happens, dialogue ensues, and then Jesus begins to teach. Sign leads to dialogue, leads to discourse. This discussion, 
This dialogue back and forth between Peter and Jesus is the dialogue that follows the sign, in this case, the foot washing. The dialogue is not easy to understand here. What does it mean to be washed? And what does it mean when Jesus says that if we've had a bath, we only need to wash our feet? First of all, most literally, it means that once you've had a bath, you only need to wash what gets dirty after that. We wash our hands before a meal. More than ever the last two years. <laughs> but in that day and age, when people are walking around either barefoot or in open sandals, if they had a bath, what you did was you washed your feet. Or if you went to someone's house, their servant would wash your feet for you. It just makes sense. But Jesus uses this washing of feet in the same way we, that he might use a parable. There really aren't any parables in John's gospel. They occur in the other gospels. There's a couple of places you could argue with that, but standard belief is John doesn't really use any of Jesus' parables. But I think he might be using this the way he might use a parable, metaphorically. And metaphorically, it likely means that once we have come to know Christ, once we have been cleansed from our sin and our lack of faith, there's no need to get resaved. There's no need to get rebaptized. That's not to say that our sin no longer matters. It does. So we still need a place to confess our sins and be cleansed of it anew. As James Bryan Smith, author of The Good and Beautiful God, puts it, uh, once we come to know Christ, sin remains, but it no longer reigns. Sin remains in our life. We're still going to struggle with sin, but it no longer reigns over us. We still sin, but sin does not own us, does not enslave us, does not define us. We have been set free and sin is no longer our identity. So here at ECC, as we did just a few minutes ago, we pray a prayer of confession each week. And one of the reasons we use the same prayer every week is because my hope, my prayer, is that some of you have it memorized. Or parts of it. Because guess what? Once a week doesn't cut it. When you become aware that there is sin in your life, no, you do not have to pray this prayer. But when it happens, and you need a go-to prayer, it's in you. And we can confess to God our sin. And this go-to prayer of confession is a bit like washing our feet. We've already had a bath. We just need to wash our feet. We just need to take care of the things that have come up. Whatever Jesus means by needing only, to, needing only to wash our feet after we've had a bath, the point of the dialogue is to take us from the sign, the foot washing, to the discourse or the teaching, which begins in verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. Here again, John more literally says that Jesus took up his clothing. And that verb, took up, is again the same verb used in John 10, 18, and now we'll read it. No one takes it, my life, from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, I have authority to take it up again. In washing the feet of his disciples, John is intentionally drawing us back to Jesus' statement in chapter 10 about his authority to both lay down his life and to take it up again. To surrender himself, to consent to his own crucifixion, and then to rise again. 
So there's more going on in John 13 than the institution of a foot-washing service as a, as a part of our religious practice. There's a lot more going on. To my knowledge, there is really only one other place in the New Testament where foot-washing is actually mentioned. 1 Timothy 5, the Apostle Paul is giving requirements on how to care, how a church is to care for older widows in the church who have no one else to care for them. It's not enough, Paul says, that they have genuine need. Paul says they must also live exemplary lives as followers of Jesus. This is what he says, 1 Timothy 5, verses 9 and 10. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60, has been faithful to her husband, and is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of literally the saints, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. On the one hand, in that culture, yes, the washing of feet for visitors who came into your home, that was an act of hospitality. That's one of the reasons I think it follows the word hospitality here. In the same way that today, if someone came to your house, we might offer to take their coat, we might offer them something to drink. On the other hand, Paul means something more than this. He means it metaphorically. To wash the feet of God's people is to serve them. It is to humble and menial tasks for them. There's no other command of foot washing in the New Testament. It's possible I missed it, but I don't think it's there. There's no other command. That means that the disciples did not understand Jesus as instituting foot washing as a religious ritual or sacrament, the way we have communion or baptism. Though there are people who have taken this as a bit of a sacrament over history. Rather, he was calling us to serve one another, to defer to one another, to show kindness to one another and to the world. God in Christ has served us to the ultimate possible degree. Therefore, we are called to go and do likewise for one another and for others. And then Jesus tells us why, verses 15 and following. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Why serve others? Because it meets a need? Because Jesus teaches us to do so? Because we will be blessed if we do these things? And because no servant is greater than his or her master? In other words, because we are not greater than our master Jesus, we too should serve others as Jesus did. Because we are not greater than our master, Jesus, we too should serve one another and others as Jesus did. Serving others, deferring to others, laying down our lives for others is transformative. It's transformative. It is a part of our journey toward Christiformity. It is one of the ways we grow spiritually. Too often, I think it's easy for us to think that the pathway toward spiritual growth is all about how much you read your Bible and how much you pray. To be clear, reading Scripture and learning to pray is definitely a part of spiritual growth. This is a yes and. Yes, those things matter, and so does serving others. So does serving others. Laying down our lives for others leads us to greater degrees of spiritual maturity. It helps us to become more and more like Jesus, Christiform people. I've become quite fond of some people. 
ancient writers in the faith. Right now I'm continuing to read from St. Teresa of Avila and her friend and spiritual director, St. John of the Cross. What amazing people these were. Teresa's book, The Interior Castle, I'm going to talk about that in a minute, is to this day the best-selling piece of literature in Spain. I've been reading about her life as well. You might want to ask, Pastor, no one's ever said this. You might want to ask, Pastor, why do you keep quoting Catholics? First, because they say some really good stuff. Okay? And we need to get rid of our snobbery that nothing Catholic is good. It's ridiculous. Second, because if you want to quote anybody past 500 years ago, you're quoting a Catholic or a member of the Orthodox Church. Those are your options. And not to quote people from more than 500 years ago is what C.S. Lewis referred to as chronological snobbery. To believe that because they've been dead so long, they can't possibly have anything to say to us is ridiculous. So I quote Catholics. You didn't ask, but now you don't have to. So I've been reading more of Teresa of Avila and about her, as well as reading uh, her own literature. And as I mentioned, The Interior Castle is a book on prayer. What we might refer to, though, when you get to what she means by this, is what it means for us to live the abundant life that God has for us in Christ Jesus. When, when the saints talk about, these ancient saints talk about growing in the life of prayer, I think most of us, many of us, might think that what, what is meant by that is that our lives will become more characterized by our ability and our faithfulness in praying for others and making our requests known to God. And to be certain, that is a part of prayer. The Apostle Paul says so. Making our requests known to God matters. But it really only skims the surface for what Teresa and others mean by a life of prayer. For her, these are my words, not hers, a life of prayer is about increasing attention and devotion to the presence of Christ within us, through us, and around us. A life of prayer is about increasing attention and devotion to the presence of Christ within us, through us, and around us. It is our hearts, our souls, our minds, and our strength fine-tuned to God's presence and the Spirit's leading. It is Christ living in us and through us. It is a way of being in the world that the world desperately needs to see. And again, I have come to the firm conclusion that what Teresa and others are talking about is this life to the full that Jesus promises us back over in John 10. And it is available to us all. But we do have to prepare ourselves to receive it. We do have to prepare ourselves to receive it. And I say all of that to say that if we were to ask Teresa, how can we grow in this readiness to receive, in this life of prayer, she gives us six conditions. Humility, detachment, solitude, obedience, and generosity. Humility, detachment, solitude, suffering, obedience, and generosity. We simply do not have time to define all of those terms this morning, but I do want to zero in on one, and you can guess which one it is. It's in yellow. Humility. It has something to do with John 13. Now, by this, Teresa doesn't mean that we should be thinking less of ourselves. She doesn't mean groveling. She might see God as saying, oh, don't grovel. The one thing I can't stand is people groveling. It's not about groveling. She's after servanthood. 
She's after servanthood. Washing feet, we might say. Looking for a need and meeting that need when we can. And we're to do so joyfully. She wrote this, quote, Always do what those in your community bid you if it is not contrary to obedience. Always do what those in your community bid you if it is not contrary to obedience. When we practice serving others, they are blessed and we are transformed little by little. We move a little deeper into that life to the full Jesus has for us. We become more aware of God's presence, more in tune with the Holy Spirit. We become more Christiform people. People filled with the fullness, with all the fullness of God. As Paul prays over in Ephesians 3.19. How do we grow in our preparedness to receive and live our lives more fully in Christ? We do it, among other things, by cultivating humility. How do we cultivate humility? We do it by serving. By meeting needs. By kneeling before those in need and washing their feet. Metaphorically speaking, of course, and sometimes, yes, even literally. In the USA Today article on Bridgetown Ministries that I mentioned at the start, the reporter commented on the significance of this foot washing from his point of view. He wrote, Washing someone's feet is an act best performed while kneeling, given the washer's position and the unpleasant appearance and odor of a homeless person's feet. It's hard to imagine an act more humbling. It is, a humbling, it is humbling to serve others, and the, the mere act of doing so, friends, over time, little by little, will transform us into a humble person, humble people who are ready to receive more and more and more of Christ's life at work in us, filling us up, overflowing into the world. There are countless ways to serve others, of course. There are formal ways, there are informal ways to approach humility. Every week, faithful servants at ECC show up to serve a meal at Bauer Community Center. We have been doing this for more than 14 years. This kind of humility and service is a blessing to those who are hungry, and it is transformative for those who serve. The same is true of ministry to children and youth, working with summer XP, teaching a Christian formation class, teaching in Kids Out Loud, serving on the worship team up front or behind the scenes, collecting and counting the offerings, serving coffee. The list goes on and on and on. Serving is a part of our transformation, friends. If you are not currently serving the larger ECC mission in some way, I highly encourage you to find a way to do that. For your own sake, as well as for the sake of our mission. And of course, each of us meets people in need every single day. People whom we can serve in some way. A listening ear, a menial task, a hidden prayer for them, granting them a favor they might ask of us. The list is endless. Once again, St. Teresa said, always do what those in your community bid you if it is not contrary to obedience. Don't want to misquote her. She means different things than we might mean by some of those words, but they fit here. Her community were the other nuns. Obedience, she was referring to obedience to her superiors. But they believed that God spoke to that. For us, it means something a little different. Our community is in this room and online. Our community is in the community. And our obedience is to God the Father. 
What would it look like for you and I to follow Teresa's advice? To do whatever those in our community might bid us to do. To serve whenever we are given the opportunity. How might that kind of humility transform our larger community, transform our congregation, and transform you? Would you pray with me? God in heaven, we thank you for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that is abundant and sufficient in this room and beyond these walls today. We thank you, Lord, that there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. But I pray, God, that in the midst of this picture of our you, our self-sacrificing, self-giving God, all the way to the point of death on the cross, that we would be humbled, that we would find within us the presence and power of your Spirit to motivate us to find ways to serve, to find ways to humble ourselves, that you might do more in and through us. God, I pray that we would come to know more and more of the life that you have for us. And let it begin, Lord, with us learning to serve one another, to serve our neighbors, and to serve you. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.